You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, July 2nd, 2012, and this is your host, Steve Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. And we have a special guest rogue this week, Daniel Boley. Daniel, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. That's very hospitable of you. Thanks a lot. Dan, you were pleasure, kind, Dan. kind enough to bid on the uh, the guest rogue spot at TAM 9 last year, and it, it only took us one year to hook up with you <laughs> to, <laughs> oh, to no. uh, get you on the show. <laughs> yep. And we're getting it in just under the wire. This is the show that will come out during TAM while we're hopefully auctioning off the slot for next year. But thanks for joining us. Yeah. So, Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, well, uh, you've had many guest rogues and uh, cup, a couple of the auction winners, uh, lawyer and uh, author, or I guess doctor, uh, Ray, and um, I'm a working stiff, uh, essentially. I'm one of those telecom guys that might install your, your phone or internet service, uh, uh, copper or, or uh, fiber optic. Oh, we'll have to talk after the show. Oh, yeah? <laughs> We're having, desperate upgrade yeah, Can you hook us up or what? <laughs> <laughs> Wrong state. <laughs> not what you know, it's who you know. Right, right. <laughs> How is fiber optic doing? I mean, do people actually get fiber optic into their house yet? Ah, uh, well, um, without naming too many companies, um, I've, I'm in an area where uh, fiber optic, internet, and telephone is available, and um, meh. There, there were, of course, some first adopters, really enthusiastic, and um, and then television on fiber came along, which really seemed to push the, uh, the the saleability. And I haven't really kept tabs on on all the areas with fiber optic, but you know, it's popular. Uh, it's certainly uh, uh, bandwidth intensive. You can really put some great speeds on the on the fiber optic without even taxing the medium. Well, that's what we want. Yeah, exactly. That's what you're on. We want yes. bandwidth, baby. Yep, yep. Dan, do you know what? Do you know offhand what, what kind of megabit per second you can get download with the fiber optic? I I, I forget what that what that number is. Do you do you know off well, the top of your head? Well, to keep in mind that I I uh, twist a screwdriver for a living by and large. Uh, you know, crawl under okay. mobile homes and stuff. But uh, as some of the specs that that as from what I understand it, we um we use single mode fiber, so it's uh so it's uh, a frequency specific. Type of fiber. There's a couple of frequencies that travel a long way, and other other frequencies of light uh, are are attenuated greatly. Um, and uh, so the the frequencies that that uh, we use can properly spliced um, provide about 2.3 gigabits per second. Ah, right. Wow. Oh my god. <laughs> to, to a single. Awesome. Right. <laughs> well, and and and, and, and that of course is uh, is uh, split up somewhat uh, to de- to deliver the, the typical you know residential services. Um, yeah. So our our, our yeah. typical packages go up to about thirty meg on download and uh, and fifteen to thirty meg on upload. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm getting uh, I'm getting one kilobit a second. So yeah. that would be very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I am not kidding. Oh gosh. Dan, one <laughs> one more question about fiber optic. Is it true that you have to limit the bend that you put in a fiber optic cable? Uh, well, yeah, you you have to limit it. I mean that's a it's a relative uh, relative assessment, but um, and uh, I'm a I'm a 15 year tech. Um, we we've been working with fiber optic for about six years, and even in that time, the bend radius has uh, has been going down and down. You could take your typical ballpoint pen and and wrap the fiber around it, and Whoa, lose wow. very little. 
you know, you'll have very little uh, light loss. Um, now, fiber likes to be relaxed, so of course we have whatever, you know, four-inch trays to put the bending fiber in, and, and that usually keeps it at a very nice radius, but you can really wrap it. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm pulling from very old information then that I have tucked away in my head that I picked up somewhere. I guess in earlier days there was a minimum or a maximum bend that you can do without data loss and all that stuff, but I'm not surprised to hear today that you could just basically do what you need to do with it. Yeah, and there may be some differences in the uh, single and multi-mode types of fiber, uh, but I'm not aware of what. Well, Rebecca, get us started with uh, this day in skepticism. Sure. Yeah, this is uh, the anniversary, July 14th, 1960. Jane Goodall showed up in the Gombe Stream Reserve, which is in Tanzania, and that's when she started studying chimps in the wild. And we're, one of her biggest discoveries that people will probably still remember is the fact that chimpanzees can use tools, which prior to her research, common knowledge was that only humans could construct and use tools. Um, and that the ant, the chimps were stick, vegetarians. Right? Yeah, but she observed a chimp going to a termite mound and sticking stalks of grass into the termite holes and then pulling them out and eating the delicious, delicious termites all over the, the twigs. <laughs> yum, yum. <Yeah>. Termites. <laughs> Did you guys know that um, when she went on her first expedition, that it was only funded for six months, it was amazingly poorly funded, and her mother was with her during that time? Oh, wow. <laughs> nice vacation. Humble beginnings. But they stayed, they stayed in like a really crappy army pup tent type of deal, and it wasn't like today's tents. Like there were canvas tents that weren't very resistant to the weather and all that, and that was the very, very beginning. And for some reason, like I've always been a fan of hers, just, just on the sheer fact of, of originally realizing that she got to spend so much time with those animals. But, um, you know her her freaking story is amazing. I mean, she is a, a an amazing person. She's she's done an enormous amount of things for not only this kind of research, but um, she's inspired a lot of people to do more of that level of research, that really in depth, full submersion type stuff, which is pretty much what it takes to get that level of information out of. And she was a pioneer. She really she really made a big difference. Yeah, she was awesome. She's always a a big idol of mine growing up because I was, you know, both a tomboy and really into nature and biology and science. And I just loved the fact like she, she, she was a rigorous scientist, but she carried this amazing love for the animals she was studying and what she was doing. Um, well, she still does, you know, she's really great. And she has a good sense of humor. Do you guys uh, ever see that far side cartoon about the two chimps grooming each other? And then the female chimp finds a blonde hair on the male, and she goes, conduct a little more research with that Jane Goodall tramp. <laughs> Apparently, the Jane Goodall Institute uh, had their lawyers contact Gary Larson and, oh my God. Uh, ask the, and ask him to pull it. But Goodall oh, herself uh, saw the cartoon and thought it was hilarious. So oh, oh my she God, stopped right. the lawyers from pursuing them. <laughs> And that uh, cartoon now appears on T-shirts, and apparently all sales from those T-shirts go to the Goodall Institute. Cool. Awesome. Here, here. Yeah. Yep. 
It's, it's one of the yeah, one of the first times I I remember. Uh, uh, I've always had this uh, this vision of of uh, when when we when I would see those documentaries about the the chimps, uh, how they would oh appear so human and you know have the expressions and all that. And that, then I started reversing that, and I would I would watch you know as I people watch or you know I, I could see I could I could almost see the the resemblance backwards, mm-hmm. and I and I just view us as <laughs> yeah. as kind of the, the apes into you know the, the this kind of skinnerian view where uh, where i'm watching the behavior and i'm not really thinking about what they're thinking about anyone here read the uplift wars yeah oh the, yeah the baby. uplifted chimps in that series bren yeah, david, david bren would you would use good all as an expletive like they would say oh good all like we would say oh god <laughs> <laughs> i forgot about that that's holy awesome. crap that's great she had to learn to adopt the nonchalant chimp behavior in order to get out of danger, which was very interesting. So she had to figure oh. out, like, what do chimps do when they're just kind of doing nothing, like digging a hole or picking up leaves and looking at them and stuff. So whenever she got into a tight spot where, like, some chimp got angry at her or there was some there was some aggression going on, even if it wasn't completely directed at her, she had to, like, Get down and just pretend like she's doing nothing and she's totally not involved. And it was a really big protective measure for her to take. But I think that's so fascinating that she, she really had to observe them and go, okay, that's what a chimp is doing when they're not doing anything and then copy it. Yeah, yeah she probably had she probably had some, of course, some occasions where, yeah, she really might have been threatened or, or during, a, during a confrontation with, you know, amongst the group, a group of chimps he was observing that she had to – Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Must have been scary. Inconspicuous. So strong. Yeah. I guess the, her, the instinct would be for her to like closely observe what was going on, but staring is definitely a primate threat. So if she just was like observing two chimpanzees fighting, they would probably just interpret that as as her like getting involved and being threatening. So yeah, so she had to make a conscious effort to not do that too. All right, Jay, tell us about National Geographic's foray into ufology. Oh my God. I was so disappointed. I've been so disappointed in National Geographic. Like for some reason, I thought National Geographic really had their stuff together. And it turns out that National Geographic, just like any other company, wants to make money. So therefore, they're writing crap to attract more more readers and, and just squeeze money out of these ridiculous posts that they have in news items. I don't know. I, I, I would like to do a deep study on what happened to this organization, but my opinion of them now is is pretty poor and here's a really good example of why they suck five good reasons to believe in ufos right on their website um Ugh. the the author's tone was was oh i'm coming from a very scientific place because 90% of all ufo sightings we've all heard this one before those aren't actually ufo sightings you know those are weather balloons and you know planets and astronomical things that people mistake for but the other 10% you know we actually heard um remember guys Michio Kaku was on TV and he said the same thing oh my god such a major yeah. disappointment my um, jaw dropped and hang on and for clarification we're saying believe in ufo's what what they're, we're talking about is believing that ufo's are something other than just simple misidentifications that they're not not just unidentified or unidentified they are something like alien spacecraft that's what they're talking about 
That's right. Yeah, I, I, mean, call, the, I call them ETC, extraterrestrial craft. The, the subtext here definitely is alien spacecraft, visitors from other planets. So they start the article with what what would constitute proof. And they mentioned a few different things here. Does a UFO have to land at the river entrance to the Pentagon near the Joint Chiefs of Staff's offices? Well, that's a little specific. That's pretty specific, but that's yeah, if a UFO landed near a government building that's, you know, heavily heavily watched and and videotaped and everything and then, you know, if that information were to be analyzed by the government, I think that that would be pretty worth, you know, worthy as evidence, at least to the government, because they know they shot the video. What they're saying is, do we need smoking gun evidence? And the answer is yes. 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 Yeah. Sorry. Wait. Yes, we do. Now, the next two kinds of proof that they list are the kinds that they're implying, or not implying, but very explicitly saying these types of proof exist and these should be good enough. So here, here's, here are their examples. Or is it proof enough when a ground radar station detects a UFO, sends a jet to intercept it, the jet pilot sees it and locks on with his radar only to have the UFO streak away at a phenomenal speed? Which is, that's happened many times. And they, they think, according to the angle that this article is going in, that that's it. That's the proof that you need. And here's another example. Is it proof when a jet pilot fires at a UFO and sticks to his story, even under the threat of court-martial? Yeah, well, that, that pilot does believe that he shot at a UFO-slash-alien spacecraft, even though he or she may be mistaken. It doesn't mean because that person is holding on to that belief, and they, they really do believe it deep down, that it's real. The level of somebody's belief does not dictate reality. Yeah, they've made a false assumption that you, you either have to uh, – either you're lying or you're, you're telling the truth and you actually saw something as opposed to, yeah, maybe you're telling the truth that you saw something but you're wrong about what you saw. Yeah, it's a false dichotomy. Yeah, and the other fallacy there is, is the implication that while well, a fighter pilot – is so well trained, you know, it's a trained observer that they, they they would know what they were looking at. But that's simply not true. The human visual system is the same for a pilot or anyone else. And there are many documented cases of, of experienced pilots, whether civilian or military, misinterpreting all kinds of things, completely getting their uh, references references off, and and thinking that. You know, an object is large and far away when it's small and close up. You know, misidentifying balloon, like mylar balloons, that you know the the uh, the planet Venus. You know, pilots locking on the planet mm-hmm. Venus and engaging it. And, you know, I mean that that's happened multiple times. <laughs> yeah, they missed Did by they the win? way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this article really plays the trained observer card uh, hard, and it's really it's really annoying. The, the the bottom line is, if you're human, you could misidentify. Mm. Period. Yeah, the, the it thing doesn't that, matter. The thing that actually bothers me is you don't hear these fighter pilots saying, "Well, you know, I've been trained to know that even when I think I see something, it might not be it because of uh, you know illusions that can happen and, and you know my brain playing tricks on me." Now, I've never read a fighter pilot saying anything. Well, I, along I those have. Lines. But you don't typically read that in UFO articles, in pro-UFO articles. Unfortunately, I don't have a reference off the top of my head. But, you know, we've gotten emails from pilots who say this happens all the time. This is no big deal. You learn about all the different ways you can misidentify what's going on there and how easy it is and how easy it is to be tricked by – uh, by the horizon and by poor visual viewing conditions and all this, all those things. This is implicit in in pilot training. 
But that always gets weeded out of these articles, and, and they, they create this fiction that pilots are somehow magical observers who can't get tricked by all the illusions that the rest of us are, are susceptible to. No, your point is taken. I mean, if uh, you know, such, an, uh, such a statement appears in a, a periodical or a, a rag, they, it probably is a very abbreviated version of what might appear in a, an official report. Right. And, uh, hey... <laughs> And of course, it sells more papers if it sounds like it's a you know a real occurrence. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Make it that yeah, way. Or television shows. Yeah, you're right, Dan. Yeah. That's that's the thing. You always have to watch out. You have to insert that now as a component of you know. Is there a money making angle to that perspective? And it, it it can sometimes make you question the things yeah. that you're reading even a little bit further. So um, to continue down now, I haven't even gotten to the uh, the the list of five yet. We're just talking about the setup here. So here's the first one, the long documented history of sightings. And the article oh goes on to give examples of oh sightings from over 100 years ago as if these were proof of anything other than people made mistakes back then too, right? Like, okay, so what you're basically saying is people made mistakes 100 years ago just like they're making mistakes today. Yeah, and of course prior to 100 years ago, um, were there no aliens visiting? Oh, no. You know what it was is everyone was attributing them to Angels instead of aliens. Right. So does that mean that this is right. also solid proof for angels? They also yeah. mentioned specifically the airships of the 1800s. Yeah. 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 yeah so nice. people were attri- yep. attributing their sightings to oh some you know somebody some you know lone genius invented an airship you know an airplane and and their description of it were like antiquated notions pre Wright brother notions of what an airship would. Might look like, you know, from the fiction of their day, not flying saucers. They 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 thought they saw stuff and they interpreted them according to the fiction of the day. It actually is evidence against an external right. phenomenon. It shows you it's cultural. It's cultural, right? I would tend to believe people less the further back you go in history. I really do believe that you know we're more savvy today. We 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 understand things a little bit more clearly, obviously, because of scientific advancement. And some of us actually, you know, have critical thinking skills, which when, when applied correctly can help us vet out a lot of different things and understand things a lot better. But in this case, you know, people from the 1800s seeing a phenomenon that they can't describe and now UFO, UFOologists are going back and saying, yeah, and they saw UFOs. They didn't even know it was a UFO back then, but that was a UFO sighting. Oh, well, I don't know, though. Like, allow me to defend the people of centuries of ago. Because they can't do yeah. it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were just as good at critical thinking then as we are now, you know. And I think what you're seeing is the same thing that happens now. A few individual gullible, credulous reports get trumped up by news sources or just by word of mouth. And that's what ends up you know, surviving through the years are these stories, not the thousands of other people who scoff and say, come on, it's no such thing as an <laughs> airship or whatever. Um, you know, sells newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. I think you'll see that happening, you know, in, well, we won't see it, but in several centuries time, people will be looking back at us like, oh, what a bunch of rubes, you know? <laughs> Well, yeah, but we are a bunch of rubes. I mean, yeah, that's our, what I'm saying. We are culture in general. Yeah, I we're, agree with you, Rebecca. We're just as much rubes I, as, as they were. Yeah. I think the only the only difference is that we have more technological savvy now, you know, according to what we what we were exposed to. But but that just changes how we how people interpret what they think they see. As I said, people 
tr- you know, seeing unknown things in the sky, imagining what they might see, interpreted according to the culture of the day. So it seems quaint to us looking back hundreds of years. But I think, I suspect, I think like a couple hundred years from now, the notion of a flying saucer will probably seem just as quaint and silly. You know what I mean? That, 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 that a 20th century phenomenon. Oh, yeah, that's what, if you saw oh, a we'll UFO... we'll be in space by then, so... Yeah, no. <laughs> if you saw a UFO in the 20th century, you would see a flying saucer. How quaint. In the future, Steve, they're, they're going to have flying vampires that they'll believe. <laughs> <laughs> Sooner than you think. Um, these heritage reports, uh, just a couple of uh, comments on that is, well, back then, um, people were used to seeing... Um, uh, well, a more limited variety of of things in the sky. Obviously, with our with our uh, age of, of air travel, um, all kinds of things are up there with you know remote controlled toy planes and and our jets and all that. And another thing is, um, you know, has the incidence increased? Uh, like let's say linearly with population. I mean, do we we have a we have a handful of reports, or at least you know, and you could you could you could claim that some of some of these incidences. Never, never survived. They, they were never written down or reported enough for us to have a record of them. So maybe there are more more reports than we have we have uh, accounted for. But um, you know, the, the one uh, example of uh, was it sixteen seventies uh, or so, something like that, it noted in the article. Well, you know, are there reams of these, or 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 do these reports increase uh, a lot with uh, the the new air age? Yeah, that's a good point. They do. They increase with the increase of actual artifacts in space and sure. in the sky. And they also increase dramatically with any cultural right. report or, or any so – you, so you have UFO flaps where there is some, some triggering event and then suddenly you have a spike in reports and then it calms down to the background level. But that background level is proportional to the amount of stuff that we are putting up in the sky, absolutely. But I would also like to point out, and this is just a gut belief that I have, that there, there are more skeptics, more critical thinkers out there today per capita than there were 200 years ago. Yeah, just blowing mm. on your own horn. Oh. Yeah, two, <laughs> 200 yeah. years was the age of enlightenment, Jay. I wouldn't be so sure. Mm. Uh, what do you know? Uh, anyway, and it's also, uh, <laughs> let me continue <laughs> on here. <laughs> Numerous modern sightings by credible, well-trained professional observers. We covered this here one. Here we go. But yeah, we talked I have some, that. Yeah. a couple of quick examples just to point out a pilot of an Air Force F-86 fighter jet who has scrambled to track a UFO and got within 1,000 yards of a saucer-shaped object that abruptly flew away from him in a burst of speed after he fired upon it. After he fired, love how he fires wow. upon it. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to kill it. Yeah. Uh, 1948 UFO encounter in which two airline pilots got to within 700 feet of a UFO, now get this, and saw two rows of windows with bright lights. 700 feet, that's pretty darn close in the air. That's lo- that's yeah, but Dan, what else has two rows of windows with bright lights that flies in the air? Hmm. Uh, a nice big 747. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. Objects that we build, so time travel, that they may have flown, <laughs> have that. Thank you. Yeah. I will continue. <laughs> uh, consi- uh, consistencies in the description of purported alien ships. Okay. So witnesses who have seen UFOs have shown remarkably consistent shapes and other characteristics of the objects that they've described, and here's what they see. Flying discs or saucers, cigar or torpedo-shaped craft without wings or fins, spherical or balloon-shaped objects that were capable of hovering or flying at high speed, and balls of light with no apparent physical form that were similarly 
maneuverable. That's a lot of different shapes. Right. That's not as consistent. It's not very consistent. To say. Right. Not consistent. And but it is consistent. But it is consistent with the drawings and covers of you know books and magazines yeah. and pulp, pulp Fiction and other things of the time that you you would see about you know space. Stories and so, so and, those are the two hypotheses for any consistency of reports that they're seeing the same thing. It's an external phenomenon, or that it's a psychological and cultural phenomenon, and, there, and that there's cultural contamination, which is the far better explanation because you can track again the the details of the reports to, as Evan was saying, the the existence of these things in popular culture, in popular media, in the movies. You know, when UF, when flying saucers start making their appearance in, in the movies, that's when the reports start to converge on that, on that concept, on that right. design. Yeah, I mean, when Close Encounters came out, I mean, that, oh, yeah. that put so much UFO information into all of our heads that, we, that was just r- running around in there. And you damn well know that that movie influenced a generation of people to see those objects in the sky. We all wanted to be Roy Neary oh, yeah. and Jillian and see these amazing things. So one thing that was interesting, you know, I'll remind you that this report that we're talking about came from National Geographic. They actually said one caveat in, is that in recent years, reports of wedge-shaped UFOs, which bear a similarity to the latest terrestrial military aircraft, have begun to supplant some of the traditional shapes. So right there, they say it. And I, and I, I question whether or not the author picked up on the fact that they – they undid that their, their their previous paragraph with that one sentence. That that right. Kind right. Of explains it right there. The author's his own worst enemy, <laughs> and it, it makes me sad to think that you know the author could even write that and not quite pick up on what it really means. Well, it's but, writing for National Geographic, and yeah, obviously gave gave some lip service initially, a little bit of lip service to uh, oh the skeptical viewpoint. Uh, you know what 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 constitutes good proof? Uh, well. <laughs> And then later on, does the same yeah. thing. Yeah, it's almost like you know, like Steve on any TV show. It's it's ninety percent BS, and then you have a little bit of a, of a thing here for the critical thinking, just to make sure they're covering their bases. Whatever. Not you're not doing good so far, pal. The next one: possible physical evidence of encounters with alien spacecraft. Possible physical possible. evidence. <laughs> what? The, why even right. write that yeah, sentence? Ridiculous. Big bucket for unexplained yeah. evidence. Yeah. So, and isn't this is the meat of it, Jay? That for me, that this this one trumps all these other other four. You know, you would think after generations of all this supposed evidence and and proof and that UFOs exist, the the physical evidence, you would think there would be something, something, just even one thing or even one completely kick-ass video that nobody can can say yes this this is this is a, you know has been manipulated Bob, on the but computer. come on men in Not black even that men in black what it, it is out there <laughs> and they come and take it away they take away the physical evidence they cut they you know, they they don't let people walk close to where the alien spacecraft Wait, you mean the, the men in black? Is that what you're talking about? Seri- right. I'm serious. <laughs> First I'm dead serious. Like all weapons and, and armaments, yes. Rebecca, well, you speak, more of a you speak to people black, that believe but, in this yeah. stuff, and a lot of them believe the, the huge government cover-up where you, you are in the right place at the right time, and you will meet the men in black who are pushing you to the, the borders. Absolutely. You yeah, know? I think a lot of people don't realize that the movie is based on a long-running urban legend about yeah government agents hiding evidence of ufos so check this out so now they say okay so here's the physical the possible physical evidence areas where soil grass and other vegetation had been claimed by witnesses to have been flattened 
burned, broken off, or blown away by a UFO. Ooh. Now, the key, How compelling. the key thing in there is had been claimed by witnesses to have been, which that's not physical evidence. Things that have been claimed by witnesses to have been. That's not physical no. evidence. I don't see the none physical evidence. Is, none of it. Jay, there are claims there, of course. evidence. There's claims of physical evidence. But never the evidence itself. Right. They didn't put the word claims in, in the, the title here. So then they said, uh, samples of plants taken from a purported UFO landing site in France in 1981. So now we're, sp- we're talking about a specific encounter here. French researchers found that the leaves had undergone unusual chemical changes of the sort that could have been caused by powerful microwave radiation, which was even more difficult to explain considering that they found no trace of radioactivity at the site. Sucked. Ding, 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 ding. That, that, that jumped out at me. That totally jumped out at me because it, I totally called bullshit on that because wait, what, you're linking microwaves and radioactivity? Yeah. It, that doesn't really work. Micro, no. micro, uh, microwave radiation is non-ionizing. There's no, you know, emission of alpha, beta, gamma, beta. or beta particles. It's non-radioactive radiation. When you shut, when you stop microwaves, there's no radiation there to detect. Right. Otherwise, so how could you me, open your microwave you're not even door talking and take ionization. out ionization? You know, you're talking about n- right, nuclear effects <laughs> for, right. for I know. radiation. So this was, this was the biggest Fact-checking fail that I that I saw in this article because this you know this is National Geographic. I mean, at least have somebody, a scientist, run through that because to me that's that yeah. that's, that was yeah. a joke. Like, have really? the folks at no radioactivity. Look at this. Yeah, that's what I thought, Bob. Exactly. I thought total non-science science-based or scientifically minded author here is is writing about something that didn't even realize. That one sentence should have set off some serious alarms. It would have set off alarms in someone that had a, a baseline of scientific understanding. It would at least ask somebody who may know more about it than themselves. Like or they don't, they don't care. <laughs> and here's the last one. Physiological effects on UFO witnesses. This is the one that, that for some reason boiled my blood more than the rest of them. Various symptoms reported by individuals who had encountered UFOs ranging from burns, temporary deafness, to persistent nausea and memory loss. So basically, people bring their wash of symptoms to someone that's investigating UFO sightings or a parapsychologist or whatever, and they say, I don't feel well, I'm dizzy, I had burns, I'm scared, I don't sleep as good as I used to, I feel weird, I have a funny sunburn or whatever, and they're saying... This is UFOs. These are alien spacecraft visiting the Earth. You know, it's it's the idea here that people would come, like when you go to Steve as a neurologist and say, "I'm dizzy." The first thing Steve says is, "That tells me nothing." There's a million reasons why you would be dizzy, just like all of these symptoms. You can't say that temporary deafness was caused by aliens. You just can't say that. There, there's no correlation. It's just. Well, the other thing here, Jay, you can see that, that, but yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of these cases have a lot of the have a lot of signs for a psychogenic illness. I mean, these people are either they're self-inflicting these symptoms or they're psychosomatic, and this is happens to be the focus of their delusion. You know, these again, this is a well-documented phenomenon. It manifests in many ways. These cases are very typical for that, and you know, you, you, in order to say that it's a specific external phenomenon, you need evidence of that, and that's what's lacking here. So it's just another example of people with weird, probably self-inflicted or psychosomatic symptoms that are latching onto some bizarre notion that is causing it. Did I mention why this article is even happening? So they could, prom- so National Geographic can promote their show, chasing UFOs. 
Don't look up, so this will all go away. Which is all part of this campaign. Uh, this the show's been advertised all over the radio, on television. Uh, they're running polls of people. 36% of the people polled believe in UFOs. They run articles like this. Yeah, it's really sad. Uh, it's sad to see it, it be so pervasive. It's, I mean, National Geographic, I mean, th- these are the people, that, their magazines were inspiring to me as a kid. I mean, you, these are the ones where oh, you... Oh, yeah, think, we know what you were inspired by, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously, people in our age group, I mean, we'd pick up these magazines, you'd see places that you never saw before. They're, they're, they have... Such a collection of phenomenal photography, and there's a history in this magazine of incredible photojournalism, a very respected history and beginning to this magazine, and now this is what you're doing? Really? Yeah, it's disappointing. Bob, tell us about a new technology for seeing inside tissue. So how's this for a science fiction medical technology, guys? Surgery that doesn't require any incisions, no cutting through skin at all. That really caught my attention. Uh, that's just one of the potential benefits that Caltech engineers envision using a technique to focus light inside biological tissues. This is a fascinating story. Like, like much of science, this latest development builds on previous work. And in this case, it's the work that this team itself had done uh, working on focusing light through t- tissue. Now, this is really hard, of course, because light scatters when it goes through skin and the deeper tissues. It's really easy to imagine how that would happen. Now, to get around this, they recorded the scattered light on a holographic plate. So they would, they would shine light through tissue and the scattered light, some of it would get, would get through where they were, they would record it on a holographic plate, which lets them know precisely how the light bounced around. By reversing this process, they could, in essence, send precise, that, precisely scattered light through the skin and have a nice crisp image appear when it comes back out. So that was kind of work that they had done recently, uh, which which kind of set the foundation with, for, for what was to come. But this is only, that was only a minor milestone though, because if you, as you can imagine, medical applications really become apparent if you can focus light onto the object in the tissue itself, not just, not just through the tissue. So to do this, the Caltech engineers were inspired by yet another group of scientists uh, from Washington University in St. Louis. And what they did was really interesting. They they figured out how to focus light using ultrasound. Now, ultrasound is very special for, for two reasons. It does not scatter in tissue. And if you think about it, it's, it's obvious. That's why uh, ultrasound is used, is used for uh, imaging fetuses. And a lot of people have had ultrasound procedures done. But the other thing that ultrasound does that you might not be aware of is that it, sli- it changes slightly the color of light that it interacts with. And that turns out to be a key, a key fact. So the process then works, works like this. You focus ultrasound onto a small area inside, inside a, bi- a biological tissue, say, say tumor. So you shine the, the ultrasound in there. You focus it precisely on where, what you want to examine. And then, then you shine light through the tissue. And this is where the previous work comes in. But the light that went through that area where the ultrasound was focused is color shifted. And that color shift is what, is what they're detecting when it, when it comes back out. And that was really key because now that they use their earlier research, they took that scattered light and they sent it back through the tissue, but they only used the color shifted light. And because they used the color shifted light, they, they sent it right back to where it came from. So what you're doing is you're like, uh, incredibly illuminating what the ultrasound was was focusing. So you got this this really intense illumination that no other team has been able to match before. 
the big breakthrough, though, was that the, Cal, the Caltech team can fire off a beam of light as powerful as they want. As I said, the scientists at Washington University can only dimly illuminate the interior of the tissue, which was a real drawback. This new technique lets them focus light twice as deep into tissue as a previous record. Uh, now, when I read what the record was, I it kind of lost a little bit of its luster for me. The, the previous record was one millimeter. So that means they could do about two and a half millimeters, which is like, well, okay, two and a half millimeters, that's really nothing. And it really isn't much. But the thing is that they, they estimate that, that once they really fine tune this thing, they'll be able to get it as deep as four inches, which is really good because especially when you consider that that's about as deep as ultrasound goes. So four inches, if they can really get to that level, then I think we might, we might really see some interesting things. Now, Bob, when I read that, my reaction was, you know, I, I read that so many times with, this, with these science news items. There's some read, read fatal limitation to the technology. Mm. And they say, but we're confident we're going to crack this fatal limitation. Meanwhile, that's the whole friggin' game right there. Yeah. So oh, no, two, absolutely. two millimeters, th- that's almost worthless. But, you know, they could it, probably give a tattoo or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. New tattoo technology. Very, very yeah. small one. You yeah, know, painless tattoo. It's like all the batteries. It's like, and all we have to do is figure out how to you know, overcome this completely fatal limitation. And and this, you know, we have, all we have to do is increase the the capacity a hundredfold, and we have something really workable here. Yeah. Um. You know. Yeah. Talk to me when you've done that. Talk to me when you've actually solved the 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 limitation that makes it worthless. Uh. And, and then you have something. So they have a proof of concept here, but they haven't cracked the the what they need to make it useful in the ways that are being maybe it'll be useful for something else but in terms of like deep imaging deep into tissue or doing doing surgery without cutting through the skin you know not with a two millimeter depth no way and i don't think that's a trivial hurdle they're talking about and it didn't really and it used the term uh tissue which you know they didn't get more specific in the article i'm not blaming them for that but uh essentially it just occurs to me okay you know epidermis dermis fat cells uh Musk, you know, muscle, muscle fibers. Uh, is there a difference? Are they going to have to overcome something in that? Yeah, they, yeah, they clearly have a lot of hurdles ahead of them. You know, all right, they they doubled the record, and doubling any record, even if it's a tiny record, is good. But yeah, Steve, I, I totally agree that if they could break through that hurdle, then yeah, then talk to us. But I and I, just, I don't know how hard it would be uh, to actually. I mean, maybe there, maybe the article, the, the articles that I read. Uh, we're kind of vague on, you know, what what's it going to take to go from two and a half millimeters to four inches? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. They didn't. They didn't say how difficult these hurdles are or how difficult they anticipate them being. One thing that I that I was that I was reading this for is this whole idea of the scalpelist surgery, and even that was a little bit kind of weird to me because, um, you know, it's obviously the most fantastic application of this technology and that's what all the headlines were, were going on about and because if you can focus light inside your body then and if you're not limited by the power of the light then you can you can i guess use it like a laser inside the body if you could focus it properly without cutting through the skin but see even that though i'm not sure how that how would that really work steve maybe you have some insight i mean you could say obliterate something inside this you know inside like maybe a gallstone by focusing the light into a la- with laser like intensity and then you're done but if it's like conventional surgery once you cut or slice through something you generally need to suture or, or you take something out right. which is going to require cutting the skin to do that so yeah. i'm not sure where they're where they're really going with this idea you burn it like that you're surgery. gonna have to remove the embers or something right. you know, it's like, not- yeah i agree i mean i think um, you have to as you say think through exactly what you're going to be doing just the ability to cut 
you know into tissue without going through the skin is nice, but doesn't yeah. that's not a surgical procedure. But there are things like as you you brought up a good one like obliterating gallstones where where you just need to liquefy something inside the body, a cancer, right. you know. Uh, for example, if you could really liquefy this, the tissue and, and then you don't have to remove it, the, the, the body will clean it up itself. Um, removing blood clots, liquefying blood clots. I mean, so there are applications I can imagine where, where you don't have to sew something up or remove something from the body that it, that it could be useful. Have any of you guys seen the GOP, the Republican Party political platform for Texas? Yeah. yeah. Well... Yeah, not allowed to vote there, but uh, no. <laughs> so you know, each state in the United States, the, the the major parties will come out with their platform, their list of things that they believe in and they promote that they will try to do if you elect people from their party. Um, they're usually more radical than the national platform, you know, where the the rough edges get smoothed out and they they tend to move to the center a little bit because they know they have to if they're going to elect a president for example you have to appeal to more than just the lunatic fringe of the, of society but the states tend to be a little bit more radical and raw you know in in their platform so reading through uh, the republican party platform of texas was was interesting now as a caveat we're not a political podcast we're going to try not to we're not talking about this to express our personal political opinions but we do talk about the intersection of politics with science and education and one of the platform states get this we oppose the teaching of higher order thinking skills critical thinking skills and similar programs that are simply a relabeling of outcome-based education, which focus on behavior modification and have the purpose of challenging the students' fixed beliefs and undermining parental authority. Uh, maybe oh, it's a God. series of typos. Uh, oh, about a th- hundred of them. <laughs> right. Series of unfortunate typos. So I, I did some background research because there's some hints in that statement that there's a backstory there. Yeah, because when somebody comes out and says something like "we oppose," you know, teaching students critical thinking skills, you, you have to wonder what the real. There's some. There's got to be some deeper story there. I mean, it, it doesn't make it any less brain dead to actually come out and with a straight face say "we oppose." You know, to write it in the platform of your party, "we oppose teaching critical thinking skills." But here's the thing, and, and I, I found articles dating back a long time to the 1990s, for example, from Texas Republicans like Phyllis Schlafly. You guys remember her? Oh, yeah, I know Schlafly. Talking about, used the terms higher order thinking skills and critical thinking skills and essentially complaining that those were, that those buzzwords were used to conceal a liberal agenda of teaching liberal morality or you know, liberal relativistic liberal morality in the public school system. Yeah, they, they think it's a code. It's a bait and switch. They think, oh yeah, they, when, they, when they're talking about teaching critical thinking, they're really just talking about pushing liberal values onto our kids or undermining traditional moral, quote-unquote traditional moral values. So that doesn't make the, the position any better, but it explains where they're coming from. It doesn't mean that they oppose critical thinking per se, but unfortunately, that becomes the effect of that position because they end up opposing things like teaching evolution, right, right. or an accurate uh, accounting of American history, like including things like the separation of church and state, or anything to do with climate change. So you take it one more step, they go, oh, that's just 
liberal code for teaching, you know, undermining traditional values like by teaching evolution and climate change. So it still comes back to their opposing teaching science. The second half of that statement I actually found to be much more problematic because it's more direct and it isn't, you know, complicated by the, what they they're, they're claiming as a play on words when they say they're opposed to the purpose of challenging the students' fixed beliefs and undermining parental authority. So challenging the students' fixed beliefs should be the exact goal of a good public school education, right? My thoughts exactly. And that's not conservative or liberal. That's teaching students to think for themselves. And you know what? A necessary consequence of that is challenging authority. You just have to suck that one up. You can't have it both ways. You can't have children who are completely obsequious before any authority and also have a child that has the ability to think critically for themselves. You, you have to pick one. You, know, you can have a, a reasonable, healthy balance for authority, but you have to, if you have critical thinking skills, you are going to question authority, and that's okay. You have to live, live with that a little bit. But the conservative mindset does tend to be and Chris Mooney, you know, in response to when I wrote about this, he emailed me to point this out, that that's sort of perfectly in line with the authoritarian culture of conservatism. You know, this respect for authority over individual thinking, uh, which is crazy. It's unfortunate at best and detrimental <laughs> on a very, very practical level. I mean, I think it's a, a losing strategy to make this part of your political identity yeah not sure sure who they're appealing to with this sort of language yes you are you know exactly who they're appealing to let's, <laughs> yeah. let's face it we know who they're talking well, yeah they're appealing to people who don't believe in evolution you know or who don't believe in, the un- in teaching science accurately the to uneducated our, masses or the incorrectly educated masses mis- the miseducated masses well, Steve, historically what kind of impact what kind of influence would say that the Texas platform have on the national platform uh, well, as I said, I mean, you know, there, there's 50 states. They all, the Republican Party in each of the 50 states has their platform, and there are variations of each other. You know, they they do vary by the regional differences. And Texas is, you know, probably as bad as it gets in terms of being in the Bible Belt and 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 having the religious right influence on the conservative party. But uh, the national party certainly incorporates a lot of the plat- platforms from the from the various states, but they tend to be a little bit more mainstream, you know, and, and not not quite as radical as, say, you know, a, a southern state Republican Party platform would be. Um, but Texas isn't the only state to flat out say promoting the teaching of creationism is a plank in the in the party platform. It's painful to see that as a platform of one of the major parties in our country. And again, this is not to suggest that there's no you know, shenanigans going on on the left. There, there, there's plenty. But th- this, I think, um, anti-critical thinking, anti-individualistic thinking, pro-authoritarian thing definitely seems seems to be a feature of the the political right. You know, the irony there is that in many other ways, the Republican Party tries to be the party of of the individual, you know, against the collectivism that they perceive on the left. And yet not – but not thinking individually, right? So isn't that 
self-contradiction? I mean, if they're the party of the, the rugged individual, doesn't that also mean being a little self-sufficient and critical thinking and anti-authoritarian? You know, I don't, it's, I, don't, I don't even know what else to say. It's just, it's just shocking. That that, I, I know it's so overt a statement. We're there are like those. 49, 49 other states with 49 other platforms, so hopefully none of them have this <laughs> sort of language in there. But they do. Uh, not several of them. It's not an isolated. Yeah, we'll follow close. <laughs> well, let's move on to um, a little bit more positive news. Let's no. actually use that positive. <laughs> uh, Rebecca, you're going to tell <laughs> us. Chocolate. Uh, Chocolate's it very nice. It's not the first time <laughs> you've done an intro for me like that. Let's move on to positive. Oh, wait. I mean, super depressing news. Uh, <laughs> but it is about no, chocolate. That's what got me. It's an alternative chocolate. Ending, How could okay. chocolate be bad news? It, yeah. it is it. about chocolate. Yes, it is. It is about chocolate particularly about a chocolate called Shosai, which is a chocolate product sold by MXI Corp using what we call multi-level marketing, MLM, which we've talked about before. Uh, basically, it means that you have to pay to become a distributor. You get a percentage of the sales of any friends you recruit and any friends they recruit. And it's basically, it's based on yield pyramid scheme. If you don't get in at the top, you eventually run out of friends who want to actually buy your product or sell your product for you, and you maybe go broke, or you end up with with pounds and pounds of chocolate in your garage. It's kind of like Amway, uh, but unlike Amway, Shosai uh, tends to appeal more to upper class. That's That's what they sort of go for, is the upper class urbanites. Uh, because they're selling healthy chocolate, which is marketed as being higher in antioxidants uh, than regular chocolate, which the sellers claim mean means that it can help you strengthen your immune system, help skin disease, prevent cancer, stabilize blood pressure, help depression, and the ever-popular cleanse the body of toxins, whatever those may be. An independent lab does actually claim that Shosai is higher in antioxidants than other chocolates, but a spokesperson for that lab also points out that that doesn't actually mean anything substantial from a scientific standpoint and that the marketing for Shosai far exceeds the evidence that any of it works. It's also marketed as sugar-free, which struck me immediately as being absurd because sugar-free chocolate sounds disgusting. I looked it up, and that too is a lie. The nuggets they sell are 25% sugar, and the power squares are 39% sugar. The sugar is fructose instead of glucose, which is apparently why they feel they can make that claim of it being sugar-free. It's still sugar. But Rebecca, they say it's beneficial for diabetes. Yeah, that's... Which makes it very dangerous that they're selling something that is literally a quarter sugar to diabetics. That's now, Rebecca. It says here too. It says ORAC and kosher oh. certified. Really, gonna have to talk to him yeah. <laughs> from respectful insurance. I've got to. got to talk chocolate. to him about that. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, for those viewers, listeners, listeners who are interested, ORAC does. It, it is. Correct. It's weird to say ORAC certified, but ORAC stands for Oxygen Radical Absorbance Capacity, and it's how labs uh, test for the presence of antioxidants. So that's all that means. And uh, like I said, the, this lab, uh, this independent lab did actually say that there are there's a higher ORAC level in this than in other chocolates, but it really doesn't actually mean anything. Um, the marketing works, despite the fact that, you know, it's 
a lot of our listeners will immediately spot it as typical BS. Uh, I'd like to read to you from a 2009 New York Times article that I found very funny and telling. This is just uh, one bit of the article. One early convert was Robin Kofer, an ordained swami and ballet dancer who lives on the 90th floor of Trump World Tower. She signed up in August and said she has about 20 executives, high-volume sellers, working beneath her. One of the friends she signed was Jill Zarin, one of the stars of the show Real Housewives of New York City. Robin is a very holistic light person, said Ms. Zarin, a former Avon lady. She says, Jill, I have to tell you about this thing I found, this chocolate. It's unbelievable. Not only that, you can make money. I said, you know what, Robin? Here's my credit card. You're my friend. I trust you. Sign me up. It's perfect. How could this chocolate possibly fail? Well, I'm going to tell you how they're going to fail, and it's a little something we call the Streisand effect. So several years ago, a Norwegian blogger wrote a post critical of Shosai, uh, particularly the health claims they make as well as the way it's sold via MLM. Another blogger uh, guest posted on the same site another piece about those claims. There were some contentious comments, but nothing actually came of it until just this past April when the blogger, who remains anonymous for his own protection, as you'll soon find out why, received a letter from, and I'm, I apologize to our Norwegian listeners, but from Sjorko Service Norge. Okay, I probably butchered that, but you get the idea. They're a member association for Shosai sellers in Norway. And this organization was angry that when Norwegians Googled Shosai, the blogger's critical post was at the top of the rankings. So they threatened him with, and I quote, a seven-figure lawsuit. They didn't actually specify which seven figures. And they also contacted his employer, saying that it appears that most of his posts go up between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., so they should know what he's up to. It gets worse, though. Shoko Service Norge also updated their website with a photo of the blogger, his name, his employer, his home address, his telephone number, and his email address, and encouraged their members to contact him personally. The next day, the blogger got another email from the organization that included attachments such as a family tree, including photos, names, occupations, birth rates, and addresses of the blogger's parents, siblings, and wife. And it also included a Google map showing his exact residence. And the email that accompanied it accompanied it, read in part. The last weeks, the organization has received several emails from Norwegian Shosai members with the following attachments. From what we've been told, this information is being sent out to 9,000 members in Norway alone, as well as your coworkers at, and they name his workplace. It's obvious someone has put a lot of effort in gathering this data. Who is responsible and why information concerning your family and home address has been sent out to our members all around Norway is something on which we don't wish to speculate. But in the light of the information we have received, we assume the probability of you receiving quite a few inquiries from Norwegian Shosai members is high. That's the English translation, I should mention, which comes via Marcus Glenton Prescott. And it's posted on the blog Unfiltered Perception by Gunnar Roland Tomlid. Again, sorry if I butchered your names. Now, the anonymous blogger responded and politely asked the organization to provide specifics about which of his statements they felt were incorrect. It's actually a very polite letter he sent back. The letter he received back from Sioko Service Norge is astonishing, but it's a bit long, so I won't read it all to you. I will give you a few choice quotes, though. Uh, here we go. 
In a closed group on Facebook, your blog in person is currently the subject of heated discussion, where creative ideas are being put forth to stop your attack on the product Shosai, the company MXI Corp, and the representative, representatives of the company once and for all. They also say, some also wish to gather a group of people to visit you at, and they give his address, to discuss your blog face-to-face. We have, of course, discouraged su- such action, but it's out of our hands. Now, huh. oh, at this point, the blogger's employers were understandably worried, and they asked him to remove the blog posts, and he did. So that would be the end of it. If only this weren't 2012 and we weren't talking about the internet. And so what ended up happening is what uh, a similar thing to what happened a few months ago that I think we talked about on the show with Stanislaw Brzezinski. What happened was uh, this blogger, Gunnar Roland Tjomlid, uh, has reposted the two deleted posts while continuing to protect the identity of the original blogger. And this story has now gone viral in Norway, making the leap from blogs to mainstream news articles. So now, as far as I know, Tjomlid has yet to receive any concrete threats from Sioka Service Norj besides one verbal threat on the phone. They said that if he published all this information, he'd be sued for more than what the anonymous blogger was threatened with. So I assume eight figures. I don't know. Uh, but luckily, it wasn't enough to stop him and good on him. So now it's a huge story and more and more people are picking it up. So hopefully now, I don't know, people in Norway can try this out. Hopefully when you Google Shosai, by the way, it's X-O-C-A-I. Hopefully when you Google that now, the critical posts will again appear at the top of the listing. That was like mob-style thuggery oh, intimidation oof. tactics. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Make like, no mistake. Oh, you know. <laughs> accidents happen all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know? Oh, people, I have all kinds of things. It's a know? very nice young family you have there. Shame <laughs> if anything yeah. happened to it. I think In I fact, that's the, the title of the Unfiltered Perception blog's post on this, which is something like the Norwegian Chocolate Mafia, which is <laughs> <laughs> just a really great image. But yeah, I mean, it, maybe that stuff would have worked a couple of years ago, but not so much in the days of viral blog posts. And this product is snake oil. Oh, yeah. It's crap. Mm-hmm. It's like just you could, you could cut and paste almost any fruit juice, superfood, fruit juice, you know, product going around here, just now it's in a chocolate bar form. Um, yeah, look at look at a Kai Berry. It's the exact same oh. uh, verbiage that they use. That didn't even occur to me. Yeah. Oh, it is exactly the same. I'm going to start marketing Akai Shosai bars, and I'm going yeah. to be a gazillionaire. Nobody will know how to pronounce it, but everybody's going to want it. Well, Evan, get us up to date about who's that noisy. First thing we're going to do is tell you who gave the correct answer to the prior week's Who's That Noisy. Remember we talked about the uh, the beautiful music we were hearing, which was the interpretation of the Gamma Ray Burst uh, from a uh, video put together by the folks at NASA called the Symphony of the Universe. And we did have a correct answer on that. Asaf Alon from Israel was the first one to guess correctly. So congratulations, Asaf. Well done. Now I will play for you last week's Who's That Noisy some open-minded skeptics, as I am, and others who are closed-minded skeptics, those who don't accept the afterlife. Okay, so who we have there is none other than Victor Zamet. Victor Zamet, yeah. Victor Zamet is a lawyer from Australia uh, who's been a thorn in the side of organizations like the, James, uh, the JREF and James Randi, and uh, 
he has a well. Let's just say he has a strong, strong belief in an afterlife, and there's nothing wrong with that. But he goes a bit further. Not only does he trash skeptics on a regular basis for having their skeptical viewpoints of things, he has a one million dollar afterlife challenge. Are you familiar with the afterlife challenge? Do you have to collect it in the afterlife? The first ghost to show up and ask for it, he'll get it. <laughs> Wouldn't that be easy? <laughs> he has a one. Uh, he says one million dollars is offered to any closed-minded skeptic who can re. Who can rebut the existing evidence for life after death? Yes, uh, he's he goes on and you know he attacks the likes certainly of Randy and he has some choice words to say about Richard Dawkins and I think even uh, Steve might be mentioned in here in one of his uh, yeah. tirades on his website, which is very difficult to navigate and uh, let's face it, ug- ugly. Victor's it's not it's not quite time cube, but oh. you know it's getting close. It's getting close. So I broke his website design. Yeah. Next week, we will reveal who guessed correctly that that was Victor Zamet. And what do you got for this week? Here we go. Brand new. Who's that noisy? Let's get it done. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. It's an interesting one. We'll see uh, who comes up with the correct answer. Info at theskepticsguide.org is our email address, as you must know by now. All right, thanks, Evan. We're going to do one email this week. This one comes from Charlie from Frantorp, Sweden. Now, Charlie. He gives his last name, but honestly, I think he's pulling our leg here with these characters. <laughs> I mean, these are not real letters, right? Charlie K. And he writes, I listened with interest to your interview about future possible mining of asteroids. There was, however, a question left unanswered. Perhaps it is something you could talk a little bit about on the SGU. What is the legal status for space mining? Is it a free-for-all? Can anybody with a rocket and a shovel mine any celestial body? Take, for example, the hypothetical platinum asteroid. If a U.S. company landed on one side of the asteroid and began mining and a Chinese company or government landed on the other side, what would be the legal situation? And let's not forget the American flag that was put on the moon in 69. Does that prohibit the Swiss from going there to mine all that cheese that Jay talked about? Best regards, Charlie. Dan, you looked into this a little bit for us. Yeah, um, well, I found a couple a couple of articles. In fact, the, uh, this question is quite timely because um, uh, there's been a lot of developments lately in the, you know the space exploration and and private industry. Uh, so there aren't a lot of legal precedents. There is a UN treaty. Uh, it's an it's an older one. It's 1967. Um, so the 1967 Outer Space Treaty through the UN, it, and, it, and it, I believe it's been, um, so it's, it, there are several countries that are signatories, the sp- spacefaring countries are signatories of that treaty, but it, they're probably signatories in my, in my opinion because um, it doesn't mean much. It is at best ambiguous. It both allows basically for unfettered and undiscriminated harvesting of space resources while also saying that you really can't own anything out there. Perhaps you can you can own the ore if if you if you do mine it, and that is uh, as far as about as far as you can go. Well, there there was I did find reference to a 1979 Moon Treaty, which forbids private ownership of extraterrestrial real estate. Uh, however, that's only been ratified by 13 countries, which is not much at all. So it doesn't really and and none of them are major spacefaring nations. So none of the people who could actually get into space have agreed that they can't own space, own extraterrestrial real estate. So I think it's, it's ambiguous. Probably not going to be an issue for a while. I think, you know, if you can 
get to an asteroid and mine it, you know, good luck. You know, you have the right to it. And it's right. not like people are going to be vying for the same asteroid, at least not anytime soon. Well, let's move on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. We have another theme this week. God, just damn it. Yay. with themes. This, this theme is the oldest. So three news items about discovering the oldest example of something. Phyllis Diller. Mm. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> All right, here we go. Well, he's oh, no. locked in, so... <laughs> Item number one. Archaeologists have discovered the oldest example of cave art dating back 40,800 years before present. Item number two. The earliest evidence of copper smelting was recently discovered in eastern Serbia and dates to 7,000 years before present. And item number three, archaeologists have discovered the oldest evidence of archery, a U-bow dating back 7,400 years before present. Well, Dan, as our guest, you get the privilege of going first. Wow. Okay, these are straightforward. Item number one about the, uh, the oldest cave art, 40,800 years before present. That's old. Obviously, uh, caves can, uh, you know, I mean, especially uh, art on stone can persist. And so I don't doubt that on necessarily on the, on the basis of, uh, of the medium. Boy, I, I really have no compelling reason to doubt that, but that is old. That is. So number two, the earliest evidence of copper smelting was recently discovered in eastern Serbia and dates to 7,000 years before present. Uh, okay, well, okay, um, leave that one for a second. And, and then number three, the archaeologists have discovered the oldest evidence of archery, a, a U-bow dating back 7,400 years before present. Now, archery was uh, a, an Asian in origin, and that falls well within, as far as I understand, that the uh, populating of that area. I think I would have to go with the, the fiction being the earliest evidence of copper smelting. That's the only one that gives me a little bit of a... False feeling. So that's where I'll go, number two. All righty, Rebecca? Yeah, for me, it's between the copper and the archery. The cave art, yeah, I get that. Maybe 40,000. Yeah, why not? They were doing cultural things back then, and it could certainly last that long. Copper smelting or archery? Uh, archery, really, really big right now. So maybe, maybe, and Steve, I know, I know your kid likes archery. So maybe archery was on your mind and you decided to make something up about archery. Or maybe that's what you want me to think. You know what? I don't care. I'm going to go with the archery one. Just, uh, yeah, just because I think you made it up because I think you like archery. Okay, Bob. Well, the cave art, I could buy that. That's not striking me as being uh, way out. The, and like Rebecca, I have a problem with the second two, the copper smelting and the archery. The schmelting. The schmelting. <laughs> you know, the archery, I could see somebody stumbling upon that idea and running with it. Um, less so the copper smelting, though. That just seems a little too far back for me to buy. So I just think the, sm- the copper is just too far back. I'll have to go with that as fiction. Okay, Jay. Dan, which one did you pick? <laughs> 
the uh, copper smelting. And how do you typically do it, science or fiction? <laughs> I'll tell you later. Yeah. <laughs> See, you know, the guy's the guy is almost done with his first show with us, and he's already busting my balls. <laughs> you you got a target on your brother. <laughs> All right, so yeah, the cave painting. I would be shocked if if that one is fiction. Um, I remember reading something. I don't know. Like I actually have something in my head that I recently saw, which is the you know the red. What were they? I forget what they were using to to make their early, early paintings, but they were doing it over their hands. You see all the human hands and all that stuff. The schmelting is... Now, does this include a pancake, Steve? (laughs) (laughs) Blintz. 7,000 years, huh? Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't they they, uh, be able to be smelting 7,000 years ago? I mean, and the third one also found evidence of archery dating back 7,400 years. The smelting is a lot more advanced than archery. I'll take the the von Schmelting for a thousand, Alex. All right, Evan. Well, uh, the cave art forty thousand eight hundred years uh, BP. Mm, sh- I agree with everybody else. I think that of the three is the most plausible one: copper smelting or archery. Sorry, Rebecca. I'm going to go with the copper smelting. Okay. One. Uh, oh. oh well. <laughs> That means you're wrong. I'm not liking my chances all right. here. Well, you all agree with number one, so we'll start there. Archaeologists have discovered the oldest example of cave art dating back 40,800 years before present. You guys all think that one is science, and that one is science. Oh, thank Ooh. God. It's, yeah. it's actually 40,700 40, years. Uh, yeah, so yeah. That, that is, uh, and Jay, I think you did probably read the item. Do you know what the art is? Consisted of yeah, penises. Oh, Not close. I just remember it being um, etchings. Those no, bunny it was really shitty. It was really. They were red dots. No, oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. red dots. No, yep. five. Yeah. But it planets. Planets. But they were obviously. among yeah, other things. Stars. It was a star system. It was a star map. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they were. <laughs> if you look at the Sorry. picture, it's this means it's something. Lots, lots of red dots in in kind of a pattern. It's obviously not a natural. Thing, you know, it, was, it is cave painting, but the, the key is it was using the same red pigment and the same blowing technique that J, of, of the pictures of hands that Jay was referring to. You, know, you put your hand on the wall, you blow the paint around it, take your hand away, and you got a picture of your hand. Um, so they figured out how to do that forty thousand years ago. Uh, this does beat the previous oldest cave art by about four thousand years. So it does push it back a bit. Yeah. Uh, this was found in Spanish locations, so in Spain. I know there were caves in France that had very old. Yeah, there was a lot of famous caves in, in France as well. But this is, you know, so, same same. So this basic. doesn't. This is not uh, like a startling pushback of the early. Nah, it really is. No. But yeah, it's four thousand years. Yeah, you talked about a long time ago makeup or something like that. Yeah, the, the clamshells <laughs> with, the, you know, with the pigment. Yeah. 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 yeah this is, wasn't surprising, but you know, I had to find three items all about oldest stuff. So. But the other two were the tricky ones, so let's we'll take them in order. The earliest evidence of copper smelting was recently discovered in eastern Serbia and dates to 7,000 years before present. All of the men think this one is fiction. Rebecca, you think this one <laughs> is science. And <laughs> this one no. is science. Yeah. Woo! Wow. Suck it. Rebecca. Wow, Suck it. Nice job, Suck it. Psychology wins again. <laughs> <laughs> um, got lucky. <laughs> it was not luck. It was not it's, luck, sir. 
It's not it's science deduction. or psychology. It's science or fiction. Psychology is a science. Once Bob, again, barely. you were right for the wrong reason. Oh, yeah. we'll get, we're getting there, though. <laughs> All right. So the <laughs> oldest example of <laughs> of uh, copper smelting dates back to seven thousand years ago. So that they found evidence of copper slag, uh, which is what's left behind after you you know heat up the ore and remove the copper. Of ore is an artifact. They also found cast copper objects. So copper was probably it was you know the evidence is that that was the earliest metal that was smelted. It has a very low oxidation potential, so which makes it easy to separate from the ore. So it's it's easy to to smelt comparatively. Cool. Uh, lead, tin, and iron are more difficult. Iron of those metals is the most difficult. Interestingly, gold has such a low oxidation potential that it occurs naturally in its metallic form. It's probably true that people were finding and working gold as a metal before the other metals because you don't have to smelt it. You find it as metallic gold. But uh, once you get up to like copper, lead, tin, and iron, those exist in ore form. You know they're bound to other minerals, and you have to you have to smelt them in order to get the purified metal out. Copper is pretty good as a tool, certainly better than than stone tools for for blunt work. But it doesn't hold an edge. It does not hold an edge, so it's not really good for making. You can, but it's not really. It's it's a poor material for like an axe or a knife. So they eventually discovered how to add tin to copper, creating bronze. bronze. Yes. Interestingly, it was thought, it was previously thought before this find that the Europeans learned how to smelt copper from the Middle East, that it actually originated in the Middle East and then spread from there. But now the oldest find is in Eastern Europe. So that kind of moves the locus of where it started. It could have been discovered independently, of course, in the Middle East and in Europe. Uh, and and also, of course, you know, the oldest of anything is always determined by the oldest example that we have of it, which is probably not the true origin of it. You know, it's just the first example that we've discovered. Which means, go on to number three, archaeologists have discovered the oldest evidence of archery, a U-bow dating back 7,400 years before present. Now, I admit this one was a little tricky because archaeologists did find a 7,000-year-old U-bow. Um, and that was the article that I was basing this on. And they what the hell? Uh, and it is the <laughs> you guys oldest Neolithic bow discovered <laughs> in Europe. It's just not by a long shot the oldest example of archery. archery. That's what made that uh, fiction. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, it's not even the oldest bow. What? Yeah, the Holmgard bow is a couple of thousand years older. Uh, that dates to eight to nine thousand years before present, and those were, you know, those are actually the, the oldest bows that we've discovered are pretty well designed and pretty functional. Yew is actually a really good wood to make bows out of. It has a lot of good properties for a bow. The Holmgard bow it has a very efficient design. It's a good bow. You could use it today as as a reasonably designed bow, and it could be made out of a lot of different types of wood, you know, that were easily available. The yeah, this is just the oldest. Neolithic bow found in uh, in Europe, but not the oldest bow. And also, there are other lines of evidence for archery. For example, a cave painting of an archer. Ah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that so that's a painting of a guy holding, obviously holding a bow in front of him, pointing it at an animal. Yeah, it's, it's hmm. iconic. Unless yeah. the, the unless the artist was psychic and he predicted the creation yeah. of the bow. 
It was a science fiction cave <laughs> painting. Come on. And the, the oldest evidence, however, which I admit is not smoking gun evidence, but the oldest evidence that is possibly pointing towards use of a bow goes back 50,000 years. Holy crap. Oh, and what? that is stone arrowheads. Now, oh, the reason yeah. why that's not smoking gun evidence of a bow is that they could have used like an atlatl to throw the arrows right. and not that yeah. <laughs> Now you're <laughs> making up words. Like that they could have used some other bit, but they look like they're the size of arrowheads. You know, they're not spearheads, they're arrowheads. But that's still somewhat indirect evidence. But still, other lines of evidence that go back far, like, you know, arrowheads buried in, in the pelvic bone that really probably needed the force of a bow to get buried in there, dating back up to 18,000 years ago. Evidence of uh, gluing feathers to shafts, you know, around 20,000 years ago. Yeah, but don't do that at home. Yeah. <laughs> 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 nice. <laughs> right. Well, the important thing to remember is that I won. Yes. The salient right. fact, <laughs> salient fact of this victory. item is that Rebecca won. <laughs> I will point out again for the wrong reason. Yes. Yep. <laughs> All right, Jay, what do you got for a quote this week? I have a very awesome quote here, and I want you, Steve, to guess who this is. But I will say that this quote was sent in by Ola Hjolmerson. Ola's from Sweden, and he sent in this kick-ass okay. quote, and I'm, I'm testing my brother Steve here with this quote. The most terrifying fact about the universe is not that it is hostile, but that it is indifferent. But if we can come to terms with this indifference and accept the challenges of life within the boundaries of death... However mutable man may be able to make them, our existence as a species can have a genuine meaning and fulfillment. However vast the darkness, we must supply our own light. You know, the, two, the two people that I, it makes me think of, one is Carl Sagan. It's kind of the way he writes. But I think Isaac Asimov comes to mind as well. You know, not bad guesses, but you're not, you're not quite there. Stanley yeah. Kubrick! Oh, Stanley Kubrick. Whoa. Whoa. Cool. <laughs> Yeah, actually, was a quote taken from a Playboy interview. He did it in Playboy magazine. So let's compare 2001 to Prometheus. <laughs> nah, <you know. laughs> hey, yes. Dan, thanks for joining us. Oh. It was a really good time. Man. Yeah, thanks, yeah, Dan. You, were, you did well. Real hey, pleasure. <laughs> Dan, I got to ask you, was it worth it? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> oh. Great. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Was, it, uh, was it Michael? Yeah, and, and he, he said something about uh, the thrill of watching the sausage being made. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you can, you can tell no one, Dan, no one, how the sausage gets made. They'll, they'll vomit, yeah. okay? A secret you'll they have do. to take to your grave. Nope, that's the thrill of secrets. All right, well, thanks for joining us, Dan, and thank you all for joining me again this week. Thank you, thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Doctor, you're welcome. And until next week, which will be our TAM episode, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice. <laughs>